Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your god. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Rollin' Bones, your source for the best in RPG interviews. I am your host, Dungeon Master and King of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and today I had the distinct pleasure of talking to one of the few people from the Frog God Games world that I have not yet spoken to on the podcast, uh, that being the legendary founder, Mr. Bill Webb. Bill and I had a fantastic conversation, a pretty long conversation too, so I'm not going to waste too much time here at the, the front end. But yeah, this this will be a good makeup episode for the past couple being a little on the shorter side, uh, because Bill is a talker, and uh, he has a lot of really interesting and cool things to say. We even got a, uh, a guest appearance from one of his kids, which was uh, pretty cool. Uh, it's, it's nice to see kind of the younger generation, you know, playing and and learning the game and having fun with it and apparently his kid even though he's 14 years old i believe is already running convention games and already running games for uh for his friends so you know that's that's awesome i i wish i had gotten into this hobby when i was younger um i mean look 20 is not too old to get into the hobby that's that's ridiculous to to say something like that but you know a lot of people especially earlier on the the kind of the founding generation of uh Dungeons and Dragons fandom and and RPGs they got into this stuff when they were I don't know between like between 8 and 13 and I feel like a lot of that's kind of lost these days so it's nice to see uh some some younger kids kind of you know picking up the books and and looking through them and and you know saying I'm going to run this for my friends we're going to have a good time that's that's cool to see especially uh you know, with this kid being as knowledgeable as he is he even schooled me on a couple things before we get into the interview though I do have a couple things that I want to cover okay the first thing that I want to talk about is the uh the Deadlands the Weird West Kickstarter because there are only three days to go, people, if you want to jump on this. Uh, we are sitting right now at right around $431,000, about to jump over to $432,000, and uh, we've got some great stretch goals left to unlock. Uh, we've just unlocked the map pack, uh, which you know, is a laminated dry erase map with a $15 add-on for all backers. And then uh, the, the last one that we're kind of sitting here waiting on at least right now, they'll probably announce another stretch goal here in just a little bit. But that would be the uh, addition to the Weird West companion that Shane and I talked about, that being the arcane background of witches for player characters. Those of you who play Deadlands Hell on Earth probably recognize this from uh, that particular setting, but this would bring it into the Weird West setting. I'm always down to add more options for players, so... You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the stretch goal. This campaign's been fantastic so far. I'm super excited to 
you know, get all the digital stuff here in a couple weeks and then uh, to get my physical copies of everything uh, from my Marshall Pledge in uh, November or December. And then there's one more campaign that I want to bring up here. Uh, this one is actually not up and running just yet, but it will be in a matter of a couple of days. It is launching on Monday, May 11th, and this is, of course, the uh, the campaign for Levi Combs' next work here, uh, Escape from Skullcano Island. If any of you guys are, are friends with Levi on social media or follow It Came From Beyond Planet X, you've already seen some stuff from this thing. Uh, I've seen a whole bunch of art from this book. It looks ridiculous and amazing. I cannot wait to see what Levi breaks out for this campaign. Uh, the uh, Occurrence at Howling Crater campaign was also ridiculous, including barf bags. Uh, so I, I am excited to see what kind of stretch goals and crazy things Levi is going to break out for this campaign. We will have him on in a couple of weeks to discuss it. He's coming on on Monday the 18th, so you guys will be hearing that episode on Saturday the 23rd of May. And it'll be great to bring Levi back on and, and talk with him again. Uh, you know, I love Levi. He's a great guy. I love bringing him on. He and I always have good conversations, and, you know, it's it's you know cool to bring on people who, you know, are, are so supportive of the podcast as Levi has been and you know Levi I know you're listening so thank you so much for all the support you've given me over this uh, this first year that I've been running this podcast so yeah uh, just some exciting things coming up uh, and remember, you've only got three more days as you're hearing this to jump on that Deadlands Kickstarter. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff that comes with it, and I am looking forward to forcing my players to be cowboys for a little bit. All right, well, guys, that is going to do it for this little intro here, now that I've plugged some, uh, some great campaigns that are coming up. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the founder of uh, Frog God Games, the legendary Bill Webb. I hope you guys enjoy it, and I'll see you on the other side. All right, Boneheads, please welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard for the first time, one of the few people from the Frog God Games world that I've not talked to yet, but he is one of the co-founders of Frog God and one of the co-founders of Necromancer Games. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Mr. Bill Webb. So Bill, how are you doing this evening? Oh, I can't complain. It's, uh, <laughs> it was a, uh, uh, we're on uh, day 59, I think, of quarantine. Uh, and um, uh, I, the, the crowd has thinned. We had 11, uh, and now we're down to nine. So uh, two of the girls uh, finally cracked and went home to their families. So I've, got, uh, I've had uh, uh, seven teenagers, my in-laws, and uh, my wife and I uh, here for the last uh, over, almost two months. I guess two months uh, day after tomorrow. <clears throat> gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, we're out. We're out near Seattle, so we uh, we went down early. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm all the way on the other side of the country in Tennessee, and uh, we are actually. I think we're we're right around the end of it here in in Tennessee, as far as the the lockdown measures are concerned. So uh, hopefully, my uh, my games will be able to go back to in person here in uh, here yeah, in I, I actually, the month. I, I how to, I learned how to use Zoom, man. It's a uh, <laughs> I was told by a half dozen of my players that that was definitely a sign of the apocalypse that I was doing something uh, with an online platform. 
Yeah, I was I was warned uh, when I had Matt on the show. I was warned that you have all the technical issues, and so yeah, yeah, I, I learned how to operate an iPhone about a year and a half ago. So <laughs> yeah, I, I started I started texting uh, about yeah, well, it's about it's been about two years. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Uh, I'm I'm not I'm not a tech guy. Gotcha. Well, I'm not much of a tech guy either. So cool. All right. Well, Bill, we're going to start this thing off the same way we start pretty much every interview off. I've got these same questions that I ask everyone uh, just to get some background on you as a player and a GM. So we'll start off right there at the beginning. Uh, how did you get into RPGs? So uh, I was 11, I was a week before my 12th birthday. So we're talking about 1977. Um, and, uh, I used to play, uh, tabletop, uh, tank miniatures. I still do actually lots of them, <laughs> but, uh, um, but I used to play tabletop tank miniatures. I learned how to play, um, at the local hobby store with a bunch of guys who are all probably dead now, cause I'm sure they'd be in their nineties. And, um, but I had a pretty good math mind. And so I kind of understood that. And I, I played tank battle games down at the local hobby store. I'd ride my bike down to it every Saturday and Sunday and, and uh, one day, there was a group of about five guys sitting around playing a war game. Um, and they only had one miniature each. And that was just the weirdest thing. And I recognized a couple of the guys. One guy had gone, when I was in seventh grade, he was in ninth grade at the middle, at the junior high school. His name's Richard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, and this was, I guess, the next year. So I, was, I would have been in eighth grade and he was in tenth grade. Um, and I recognized him and I went over and asked him what they were doing. And they're like, Oh, we're playing Dungeons and Dragons. And they had this really cool wooden maze with like, uh, like slats, like a, it was like a mouse, like a mouse maze type thing. I think it probably was a stolen mouse maze. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a guy named Scott Stabbert and there was a guy named, uh, Victor Armour and there was a guy named Fraser McKay, uh, and, and Richard, who was the youngest one besides me. Um, and a guy named, uh, Buck, I don't remember his name now. He was the DM. <laughs> And they were running Teagle Manor. It had just come out, and it had come out on Halloween, and this was in November of uh, 77. And um, and so I asked if I could play, and of course, you know, all these, you know, big high school kids, actually, I think Scott and uh, Buck were in college. They were like freshmen in college at the time. They let me play, um, and I, uh, so I, uh, I rolled up a cleric with like, you know, I had like a 13 wisdom and nothing else above about an eight. And... Um, played in Teagle Manor for a couple of hours and then I was completely hooked. And of course, since I was the dumb little kid, um, they wanted me to DM because everyone wanted to be a player. Nobody wanted to be a DM back then. It was really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about, you know, you know, three books plus Greyhawk, uh, plus, you know, very few, very few things were out. Judges Guild had a few things out. Um, TSR at the time, I think, think just Greyhawk was out. I could be wrong. Uh, Blackmore might have been out by then. Anyway, so my birthday is November 21st. This was probably about the 10th of November or something. So I told my parents what I really wanted was a white, I wanted the white box set. Believe it or not, they sold it at Nordstrom's. And um, my my mom said, oh, cool. You know, they, they'd buy you toys. They'd buy you games, right? Yep. Uh, so I, my mom and dad bought me a white box set and um, – uh, and then I had a little bit of extra birthday money because, of course, that was like a $10 present back then. Um, and uh, I bought uh, two sets of dice. I had like 40 bucks. bought two sets of dice, a Teagle Manor, um, and a Treasure Vault of Linder. And I think that, that might have been later. Uh, 
a Dragon magazine, which I think was issue 22 or 21. I can't remember for sure. And um, the dice were like more expensive than anything else. They were wicked expensive. They were like $10 a set back then. Because only Luzo Kai made them. Only Game Science made them. They were the, the weird, funny dice were crazy expensive. I got a funny story with the dice in a minute. <laughs> and um, anyway, so then that was, I, we started playing. So I started playing Teagle Manor. Well, I read the whole, you know, I read, I, I was an avid reader. And I'd already read Tolkien. And I'd read a few other things like that. Uh, I read uh, some Stephen R. Donaldson books, White Gold Wielder, that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. Tales of Dying Earth I'd read. Uh, and um, so I read, you know, the, you know, make your dungeon, you know, your mega dungeon thing uh, in outdoor and wilderness uh, skills. Oh, I know what else I bought. I still have it. Actually, I got it here. This is my original box set of outdoor survival. Oh, nice. I have a copy of yep. this to play OD&D. Anyway, mm -hmm. that was the other thing I bought. That was, that was for, uh, I, think, I think it was $14, if I remember right. Anyway, um, so, uh, I've got about six copies of it now, but that's that is actually my original one from from uh, from 1978, 77, gotcha. November of 77. <laughs> anyway, so um, we started playing using the outdoor survival board, and uh, I got really familiar with the books, and I started crafting dungeon levels to make up my own dungeon. Uh, after kind of you know styling it on Teagle Manor, and what you guys uh, out there in the greater world see that as um, are many of the levels that are in Rappanathic. That was actually the original. Uh, very beginning writing I ever did. Um, there were, I think I wrote 26 levels between uh, about 1978, probably when I really started writing stuff um, on my own, rather than just using Teagle Manor or using, you know, something that was, I think I had a, you know, a, a G1 and a, uh, I, there were a couple things out, a couple other Judges Guild books out. Um, and that's, if you look at the first 26 levels of Rappanatha, that would be, um, what I wrote while working for Scott Stabbert, who was a commercial diver. Um, and if anybody who got the notes on the Kickstarter, will see a lot of stuff out of there that's on like Marina notepads and stuff. Cause he did a lot of the cartography when we were taking breaks from him diving. I used to, uh, dive 10 for him. And, uh, so I'd write, I'd write stuff while we were at lunch breaks and while we were on his, uh, his rest breaks from being underwater. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that's where the first, uh, rapid ethic levels came that you guys saw back in like 2000 and stuff like that. Um, now the, here's the punchline from all of that. There's, there's, there's the really cool thing. Um, Richard moved away. Um, he ended up being one of my best friends. His name's Richard Oliver. Um, he moved away when he graduated and he moved to Alabama from, from, uh, the East side of Seattle. Um, and I hadn't seen him since Jesus. I mean, like 1984 or something, 1983. Um, and I ran into him at Gen Con in 2012, I believe. Huh. And, uh, there were a whole bunch of the early levels of Rappanathic that I'd written back in the seventies and the <laughs> early eighties, probably that, you know, when you, back then you had a notebook and if somebody killed the ogre, you, you take a racer out and you erase it. And I wrote everything in pencil, <laughs> uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages of notes. And then, you, you know, a couple weeks later, you'd roll in the encounter and the monster would get replaced. If the ogre got killed, maybe next time there'd be a displacer beast or something, right? He had, he had Xerox, he had Xeroxed um, a lot of my early levels uh, from Rap and Ethic before they all got erased in high school and in college and stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the stuff we put in the last version of it, the fifth edition version of that kind of thing, there's, I think, about seven or eight levels of stuff that were lost levels that 
I didn't have copies of that I got when I rented to Richard. And he now works for us. I hired him as a layout guy and uh, he's a graphic designer and he's working for Frog God as a graphic designer and he's, he's actually heading up uh, all of our POD stuff with Amazon. So it's gotcha. kind of came full circle. Uh, and here we are in our late fifties and, uh, and, uh, I ran into one of my best friends from, you know, when I was, you know, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, there's that. So, and I have to qualify this now because I've had some smart Alex on the show say, you know, the, their game. Uh, so other than your own intellectual property, what would you say your favorite game system of all time is? Well, I mean, it's OD&D. I mean, I, I'm, gotcha. I'm an OD&D, I'm an OD&D player, uh, died in the wool. Um, you know, AD&D, uh, if you strip off the complex rules like the weapon class and the, and the you, know, you know, the bonuses to hit, mm-hmm. uh, if you punch somebody with a fist, if they're naked, and if you, uh, you get minuses to hit if, they, uh, if they're not, um, we, we, we used a lot of those rules. Though I'm actually going to throw a cryptic one at you. So <laughs> one of the guys that we played with um, about two or three months into, uh, well, I guess it would have been December because he was home from college. It was a guy named Steve Peterson, and it's not the same Steve Peterson from uh, Chaos Um It's this is Steve Peterson from Balboa Games, mm-hmm. and uh, here's one for the Grognards and the crew. If anybody's ever heard of the game, or the the D and D game, it's a D and D game that got sued out of existence, by the way, called Warlock. They made I think three or four books. It was Warlock, Warlock's Menagerie, Monkey God's Tower, and they did something else that sort of never saw press, but I think I have a copy of it. Um, we had uh, dot matrix printer printouts of it. They all went to this whole bunch of guys who went to Caltech and they had, uh, they had developed their own game system and they opened up a game store. Actually, a couple of them did called Balboa games, uh, down in California that I think only went out of business like two or three years ago. Uh, and so some of these guys went to Caltech and they opened a game store and ran it for 35 years. Right. Um, rather than become, you know, scientists and engineers and whatever else you would become from Caltech. Steve actually did a little better than he did. He, became fairly wealthy in the IT business, but, um, but we had, so the, probably my favorite, uh, game system that I had nothing to do with developing, honestly, that was most influential on what I did was, was, uh, was the Warlock stuff from Balboa games. They actually invented the thief class. So it was out before Greyhawk was, uh, back when they were only fighting men, clerics and magic users and Balboa invented the thief class. Um, and I th- want to say 1976 is when they, when they first published this stuff. Uh, and again, then TSR squashed them like an insect and, and they went away. And so their, their, their books are, uh, both difficult to find and quite valuable these days. But, but of course I've got copies of everything. Um, gotcha. They come up every now and then on, on eBay or, or whatever else, but it's mm-hmm. Warlock. If you want to still is the, maybe the best treatment of a thief I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. Now, does anyone like still run that, like at conventions and stuff like that? Um, I haven't seen, I haven't run into anybody running the Warlock system. Um, it's about as obscure as Yisgarth, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I haven't seen anybody uh, uh, running it because I don't even think there's PDFs available or anything like that. Because I mean, like I said, they they uh, it, you know it violated stuff, mm-hmm. right? Or at least the perception was that it did. Um, in this, in today's day and age, I'm not sure that it would violate anything because, you know, right. now you, you can't copyright rules. Right. But, mm-hmm. um, but it, it, uh, at the time, uh, they, uh, they got a cease and desist and they did, um, I haven't run across anybody running, 
a Warlocks style system since I quit running a Warlocks style system in college. So gotcha. 84, mm-hmm. something like that. Last time, I, last time I've seen or heard of it um, in play. Gotcha. Uh, but but if anybody's if anybody's really interested in what that is, they should. I'm sure there's some out there on you know. I'm sure you can find a copy of it someplace. It's probably even past any kind of copyright deal on it. Gotcha. So before you were press ganged into DMing, uh, yeah. do you remember the the first character or the first memorable character that you were able to play? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't get to. I've, I've really never got to play much. Um, the uh, the uh, yeah, it was. I mean, I was first level cleric named Bill. Strangely enough, <laughs> and uh, um, I the thing I remember most uh, succinctly was uh, getting a. Uh, I made my turn. We ran into the you know room A five or whatever in Teagle Manor, the one with all the twelve skeletons in the dining hall, and and everybody dies right except for me. And I managed to turn these things, and they run away. And it was because I was so scared of anything undead, you know, because mm-hmm. my experience with anything undead at that time was like watching, you know, Harryhausen movies, right? Yeah. So I, so I saw, I heard skeleton and I'm like, oh my God, Jason of the Argonauts, <laughs> these skeletons will kick your ass no matter how powerful you are. And I'm first level. Ah, you know, and, um, and then they all ran away. And uh, uh, probably the, the biggest coup out of all that was I remember pulling an arm on us. I was the only one alive. I was the only one who survived pulling on the arm of a statue and I got a magic scroll of raise dead. And, uh, and I was able to raise one guy's character with the scroll of raise dead. I got cause the scroll popped out of his mouth. Um, and, uh, and then honestly they, they made me the DM and you know, uh, the, you know, they thought they were going to, they were going to pick, they were going to get the little kid to give them all kinds of lots, lots of free stuff and loot. And I think they, they learned that was a little different with me. Um, <laughs> And uh, so, oh, speaking, speaking of, speaking, I'm on a podcast. Here, come say hi. Oh, okay. Hello. Many, many of you who are watching hi. this, or lots of you guys may know may know this guy. This is our, uh, this is not our prodigy DM. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I do. I do. I'm running to get to my friends. I'll do that in my room. All right. Yeah. Run, run upstairs tonight, son. Um. So he 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 helped me out with Zoom the first couple times too. So, uh, gotcha. he runs games on Zoom now with the the quarantine thing going on as well. Absolutely. How Tell your friends you to listen to Rolling Bones with Ryan you Howard. First uh, convention game? Um, like 12? 12, 12, 12. 12. Okay, 12 years old. Oh. He sort of grew up with Jim Ward and me and Matt, so he's he's had some experience. That, that'll do it. <laughs> Absolutely. So over years of, of running a lot of games, uh, I've noticed that even even myself, who's been running for three years, I have a forever NPC. Is there an NPC that somehow finds its way into many, if not all, of your games? Well, for years, um, you know, there's Caden, right? And Caden is the is the um, one of the two wizards um, in uh, in the sort of air book that I wrote, um, and uh, now that's published. Um, he doesn't work his way into too much anymore because once I once once something's gone to press, I don't, I don't use it in in my home games or or in my convention games anymore at all uh, because somebody could have read it right. So, yep. but Caden was around. So there's there's actually a couple out of that book. So Caden was around for for a long time. Um, I, I I think that the closest I ever came to getting murdered 
physically murdered in real life by my players was when they realized that, well, I probably shouldn't spoil it too much, but when, when the, they, they'll just say Caden was their patron and they had a bad night one night. Um, and I, wanna, I don't want to say too much about the book in case there are players out there with Sword of Air. Uh, the other one that was a real nemesis um, for probably the two groups I played with the longest, which would be high school and then again in college, was uh, the, the anti-paladin Duncan. And he's another one. He's another character out of Sword of Air. Mm-hmm. Um, that was, uh, you know, a long-term uh, pick on the characters, pain in the ass nemesis that, um, again, I haven't used him for many, many years cause he's in a book now, but, <laughs> but he was, he was, uh, he was bad. And then, uh, and then there's a, there's another, a third one out of, uh, uh some judges guild work that I, that I used to use in my home campaign, which is Lokog Vishnak. And, uh, if you ever get Clark, you would never, you probably won't ever get Clark Peterson to do an interview because he's out of the industry and doesn't, and, and sort of is not really interested in being in it anymore. But, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, Lokai Vishnak was uh, another uh, real bad, evil, evil big bad guy uh, out of uh, Judges Guild stuff that, because I used a lot of Judges Guild stuff in my game, mm-hmm. uh, that um, was around a lot and caused people a lot of trouble. He ran around, he was the uh, kind of the head guy from a big war band of orcas that, that roamed the the east coast of the main continent. Gotcha. And and he was yeah, he'd go trash a couple of towns. He was sort of I I'm I'm not really sure if uh if uh Bob and he was inspired by um Thulsa Doom, but it sort of felt like that. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. So how would you describe your play style as a, as a GM? How would you describe your, your philosophy when it comes to running games for people? You know, I'm fairly low fantasy. Um, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, you know, again, it's OD&D, right? So that you yep. do get magic items. Um, <clears throat> uh, I'm very descriptive. Uh, I, uh, you don't have to roll a lot of dice in my games. You do a lot more interaction and talking than you do dice rolling. Mm-hmm. Um, I improv almost everything. I work off, you know, a, a cursory set of notes. Um, and so I sort of, you know, I, I try to play to the audience a little bit, you know, if there's mm-hmm. a, if there's a, you know, if there's three thieves in the party, I'll try and style the adventure so that they have something to do. If, um, yep. if, uh, you know, if you have a, you know, a, a druid in the party, I'll make sure that you're not just fighting undead the entire time. If you're, you know, if you've got a, a paladin, odds are, you know, some bad guy is going to be, you know, messing with you to the point that the paladin really has a motivation to do it. So I try to, I really try hard to, uh, to focus on stuff that would be of interest to the players mm-hmm. um, and, and, and would motivate them in some way. And then, but again, I, I you know, I'm fairly low fantasy. I'm really descriptive. I don't do a lot of, I, for a good example is I don't give any experience points for combat. Hmm. Zero. Um, you don't get any points for combat. Uh, you get experience points for overcoming obstacles, overcoming problems. Sure, if you kill the ancient red dragon to save the dwarven village, you're going to get points for saving the dwarven village. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you know, gold. You get experience points for gold. But yeah, I, but I, I, I focus really heavily on uh, puzzle solving and thinking thinking people's solutions more than I do on just on just uh, murder hobo stuff. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So, again, with a lot of years in RPGs uh, and and having you know spent so much of your life kind of focused on RPGs and creating RPGs, I'm sure you have a lot of 
fond memories associated with this hobby. If you had to pick one that you would say is up there or even the fondest RPG memory, what would that be? You know, there, there, there's, there's a bunch, but one that really comes to mind was in 2016, I think. There's a guy named Steve Balog who goes to North Texas RPG Con every year. And one of the things he does, he brings a whole pack of kids. I'm not exactly sure why he knows them, but I know he's doing volunteer work of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, I had 26 players in the group that night. And I was, it must have been 2014 because sort of air wasn't out yet. Anyway, I was sort of running chunks out of the, the puzzles and traps type stuff out of, uh, out of, out of that particular dungeon. There's a, there's a, there's a dungeon in sort of air um, that quite frankly, you know, and I've been told this makes two horrors look like, you know, kitty, a kitty pool mm-hmm. um, in terms of it's, you know, it, it's difficulty. And if you do the wrong thing, you're just dead. Uh, Skeeter Green gave me hell about it because I guess there's like a CR 42 trap in Pathfinder or something. It's a, <laughs> a 20 ton block that falls on you. It's on a staircase and it slides down the stairs. And if you're on the staircase, you become stair shaped. And it's like, you did it. <laughs> he was like, well, how much damage did they do? I'm like, dude, this doesn't do damage. You're just dead. Right. And he goes, well, you can't do that. Pathfinder. I'm like, well, okay. How much is 20, 20 tons sliding 80 feet down a staircase due to somebody. Anyway. Um, Anyway, the cool thing about it is, so it's all these guys. We had like, you know, I mean, my friend Guppy who's an IBM executive. We had, we had, you know, you know, all these dudes with lawyers and, and, and cops and doctors. And there's a PhD biochemist in the group that's a friend mm-hmm. of ours. Uh, and then there was this like 13 year old kid named Charlie. <laughs> yep. Okay. And um, anyway, so there, there were two or three particular instances that night. And one of them was a, one of them was like a four color puzzle trap thing where it, it fries you a little bit every time if you screw it up mm-hmm. and, uh, and they weren't listening to him. They were sort of talking over him. And of course this is like big cacophony of, you know, a lot of personality in that room. Right. Mm-hmm. And the kids sitting here going, guys, 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 you know, it's, it's red, yellow, blue, black, <laughs> you know, and, and they, they tried like they, they kept, you know, they, I think they might've even killed a couple of people um trying to you know do it wrong right they're misinterpreting the riddles mm-hmm. and finally they listen to him and sure enough you know the door opens and they you know staircase going down okay so a little while later um they're uh keep in mind you need a plus two or better weapon to hit a fire elemental right so you yep. can't hurt a fire elemental when you're playing O D and you're all like fourth level and third level stuff nobody's got a plus two weapon right and uh so they get this thing and they're locked in and this fire elemental is just like you know crushing them well, the trick was you had to you had to you know you had to call out its name, and run it through this pillar of frost, right, and get it to run so it chases you. If you call its name, it enrages and comes after you. He figured that out too. And there was a third instance that night, and we we played for about five or six hours that night. And mm-hmm. Anyway, at the end of the night, uh, I mean, I, this kid was dazzlingly smart. I mean, he just like he just he just opened a can of whoop ass on me. I do have one other one I want to tell you about. That. So. He just opened a can of whip ass on me. He totally stumped. He totally just like blew out. He blew out my puzzles for the night when all these like, you know, 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 year old guys and gals who are long-term, you know, highly experienced, highly experienced playing with me players were stumped. Um, I ended up handing him about a thousand bucks for the books that night. And I was just like, son, take them, you know, here's my collected works, take them home and read them. Uh, I was so impressed with him. And 
at the end of the night, one of the things that happens is the they, they roll for magic items and high roll gets them and all that other stuff. And anyway, there was like a plus two plate mail, suit plate mail, which is unheard of, right? It's like a 1% chance on a, you know, you know, it's a really, really, really rare item if you get a magic item. And magic items in sword and wizardry and in OD&D are quite rare. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a 10, you know, it's like for every 10,000 gold pieces or something, there's like a, you know, 5% chance. And then it's like a, you know, you got to roll a, 14 or whatever to get armor and then it's a one percent chance on the table anyway so they got plus two plate mail oh my god you know that's earth shaking and they get it and kid was playing a, i think he was playing a he was either a fighter or a paladin i can't remember which and um they're like okay who's gonna roll on it and everyone just shakes their head and there ain't no way the kid gets it there's like <laughs> kid you got the plus two armor you know <laughs> and it was it was it was it was really fun because um it's that and I, 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 I appreciate this out of kids a lot. I've, I've got, I've had a group that's uh, now in their late teens and early twenties that I played with here for almost a decade. It's, they don't know what they, they don't know what they don't know. Right. So everybody knows what they know and they, they know what they don't know, but they don't know what they don't know, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so their, their creativity is something that can really younger folks and, and, and they, they don't think like we do necessarily. And so they, they think of stuff that you don't, they come up with solutions that you wouldn't necessarily think of. So the second one is sort of similar. It's a kid story. Mm-hmm. Um, some people probably already read this in, in the book of dirty tricks, but so uh, my daughter was seven years old and she's had this character since she was five years old when she first played. My kids of course had no choice but to learn how to play D and D young. <clears throat> and um, we were in also in Dallas and Jillian's um, like convention buddy, her best friend at conventions is Dennis Astaire. Uh, you got you know, bunnies and burrows and the chariot of that guy. Mm-hmm. And they've been really good friends um, since she was like five. They met at a convention and it was like new grandpa, you know, and, and she loves Dennis and Dennis loves her. And they're just, they're buddies. And they, they play all kinds of games together every time we go to conventions. And um, so she's in, she's in this game and she's with Dennis and Dennis has got the big badass fighter. He's like fourth or fifth level. And, Jillian's got her fourth level cleric, you know, and, and uh, uh, anyway, so they, they're in this dungeon and the, um, and uh, the evil priest throws a sticks to snakes at him. Right. And mm-hmm. I wrote poison snakes and it's, it's game over, man. It's a total party kill. There's like 28 poisonous snakes biting everybody in the party and everything else. So Jillian gets bit. She rolls a one in her saving throw. It's like, you dead, honey, you know, and the gasp through the room, you know, I killed this character that everyone's played with for like three years at multiple conventions and, you know, has been in her home game character and everything else. Yeah. I killed a little kid's character. Not everyone in the room knew it was my daughter. Right? <laughs> and uh, Dennis goes, Bill, he goes on my initiative. I use a neutralized poison potion because he had a, he had a potion of sweet water. So it's mm-hmm. like, okay, Jillian, your turn. What do you do? She goes, daddy, I cast, I cast snake charm. And I'm like, come on nobody <laughs> takes snake charm and she goes like this she goes read it and weep oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it's on her character sheet she had memorized snake charm so she takes control of all the snakes and they proceeded to lawnmower the evil temple with 32 poisonous <laughs> vipers um taking no casualties dennis had kicked the door in jillian cast speak with animals kill 32 vipers go in. I think there were like 10 vipers left when the sticks of snakes spell wore off, like, you know, seven hours later or whatever. Um, and, uh, that was, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of awesome. Honestly, I was really proud of her. Really proud of her. Oh, that's amazing. That is amazing. 
Well, unfortunately, even though we've, we've talked about some, some great stories, and those are certainly some great stories, uh, now there, there comes a time in every group at every table where someone sits down who's not quite on the same page as everyone else, mm-hmm. maybe out to cause a little bit of chaos, maybe just outright a bad person. For the worst of these offenders, <clears throat> we have this term of that guy. So if you could share a story that you're comfortable with sharing on a podcast, your best or worst of that guy story. You know, honestly, um, I've had very, very few experiences where I had a, a super bad player. Um, there, I mean, a couple conventions. I had there was a there was a fella at one convention. I won't mention where it was or anything else, just because I won't. Mm-hmm. But um, when uh, I had a six pack of my kids in the room, um, who were you know ages at the time probably eight to fourteen or fifteen, mm-hmm. and he was just a jerk. He was really pushy. He was bullyish. Um, my son actually left the room. He left the game, um, and. You know what? I, what I, what I did is I I knew I knew most of the other players, and I just I just killed the guy. Mm-hmm. I was like, <laughs> "Oh, sorry, man." Yeah, the uh, the the orc attacks random. Oh God, a six! It's you. Um, <laughs> and so I just smoked him, and uh, um, and uh, you know, and so he no longer had a character in the game and had to go away. And you know, it's but honestly, I, I you know I probably played D anD D with. I'm trying to think what the number would be without exaggerating. I mean, it's definitely at least a thousand people, right? Um, And I I, I don't know if it's 3,000 people, but it's more than a thousand. I mean, I've probably been to 150 or 200 conventions. So you figure just in that alone, you know, and I run games with 20 people on them, right? Yeah. Um, So, you know, if, if, if I were to take those thousand people, I'll bet you uh, I'd drink beer with 975 of them. And, um, and of the 25 that I didn't, um, uh, it's probably because, you know, 18 of them are, uh, you know, on the wagon. Uh, and then there's the other seven who, you know, you just, yeah. you try to politely, you know, you, 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 you try to politely correct it. If you can't politely correct it, I, I haven't had to, uh, uh, get really um, aggressive with anybody to, to, to get rid of them before. Right. Um, certainly not at a game table, a game convention. I've had a couple experiences where people tangled with me or whatever, or tried to, um, but, um, uh, but never, uh, I, I've never really had th- that one time was about the only time. And of course uh, my, my players police the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there, there's probably, Eight or ten folks. Have you you know you know the silver silver boule guys are right? Ian McGarty um, and uh, Rocky and those guys. I they don't. Little, little, they have a little game company. They're on the Friends of the Frog thing and everything else. They're they're oh, uh, they're uh, they're they're some guys I met. They they, they had I met them at Gen Con years ago and they had this T-shirt that said "Bite the boule." <laughs> like a course yeah. on it and i was like oh my god that is the coolest t-shirt ever i want that and he whips his shirt off and gives it to me so we traded shirts so he got a necromancer games orcas t-shirt and i got a silver belay t-shirt and we became friends and anyway they're like regular players in my games when john ran his first um 
convention game is he was a little kid crawling around the table thing mm-hmm. and uh, he had all adults and they you know it was like weird the people couldn't believe that they had a kid dm i sent ian and rocky and and uh and big spoon big spoon's this huge guy uh, uh with them as sort of plants just to make sure everything's cool but but those guys sort of police it i i haven't had uh I haven't had a whole lot of bad experiences with players at a table. I mean, there's been a few. Gotcha. Remember that guy? At, 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 uh, oh, oh, yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. so he asked me with the he asked me my worst experience with a player at a table was I just oh. killed him. <laughs> but, but gotcha. Yeah, I, well, I, I if if it's not if it's not fun, don't do it. Man. Right. Yeah. If you, if you're gonna put that much time and effort into creating an experience for other people. They should they should really appreciate that and uh, at least not be rude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. But I think honestly, other than that one time, I really haven't had anybody just be a reprehensible jerk. That was about that was about the only time, at least in a stranger situation. Yeah. Uh, and of course, the home game, you just don't invite it back. Man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, have, none of your players should have to put up with that, and you shouldn't have to either. Yeah. He's still bitter after seven or eight years. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good it's all good next if i'm ever at actually I, I do plan on being at conventions that frog god will be at so if i if i ever see him at a convention i will tell you guys uh my my deadland story okay okay which i will By not get way, into if here you get to one of the conventions we're at i'm pretty good uh you want to play in a finch game man mm-hmm. that guy that guy is the master Absolutely. I mean, I've played with I played with Gary Gygax. I played with Bob Bloodsaw. Mm-hmm. Um, I played a game or two with Rob Koontz. Um, I played with David Kenzer. I played with Monty Cook. I played with Steve Wick. Uh, I've never seen anybody like Matt. Gotcha. He's 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 just he's, he's <laughs> you know Jim Ward's close. I think Jim Ward's a close second, but but Matt is really Matt's special. Gotcha. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've talked to Matt. I, Matt's a cool guy. I need to get in on one of his games. Yeah. Cool. Well, we've got one last introductory question before we dive right. into the stuff around uh, kind of your career specifically. This one has uh, flummoxed some people in the past, though. The answer can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be, Bill. <laughs> you, can let me, you can let me answer a philosophical <laughs> question. Actually, it, it uh convention a few years ago they just said they called they changed they changed it to uncle billy's story hour just let me talk <laughs> go ahead so if you could put anything on a t-shirt what would it be oh my on a t-shirt uh, he McGar- is a conventional what, oh god yeah that's totally man okay speaking of the boules okay so uh this goes back to uh i, I gotta tell the quick dnd story with it and then i'll then i'll, then I'll go ahead and say it oh, so um so the, the, I had, the, I had a, a game at GaryCon two years ago, and it was my usual crew. And, and out of the 20 players in there, like 14 or 15 of them have played with me for more than 10 sessions at conventions, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so the big bad is a death night, but, but surrounding this thing where they have to – without going into too much detail, there, were, there was a death night, and there were intellect devourers. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you know anything about first edition or zero edition intellect devourers, but they're basically, I mean, nothing kills them. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're a little psionic thing. Plus three or better weapons do one hit point of damage to them. And they're not very dangerous because they only do like a D4 damage or something, but they're, they're, they're almost impossible to kill. And, uh, and Rocky Gardner, uh, all of a sudden looks, they're making their plan to like 
the to make the big attack right because they they know the bad guys are there they've done a wizard eye and they can see it and everything else and he goes you know a death knight's a conventional opponent we know how to deal with that but what the hell do we do with the intellect devourers <laughs> that's what i put on a t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I, 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 about, I about fell off the table I was standing on because he said a death knight was a conventional opponent. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Gotcha. You could even just, like, have the, the, the Lord Soth Elmore painting with conventional opponent and, like, fancy right. script underneath it. Conventional opponent. What the hell do we do with these little elect yeah. mountains in the back? Little, you know, two-foot-long clawed you know brains right i mean they're yeah they're, they're immune to everything gotcha gotcha so now we move into kind of the the realm of stuff specific to your career and so i guess we should start kind of with uh you know the the first company that you you helped to found here sure. and uh that being necromancer games so so tell me a little bit yeah. about how okay, that I, could, I could actually i could actually one up that um okay oh so um in 1981 uh, one of the gentlemen I mentioned earlier, Scott Stabbert, um, I had given, he was the diver. I, I gave him for his birthday, I gave him this little rubber stamp that had like a dragon breathing fire and it was really neat. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and um, he had a dungeon called the Black Monastery, which Frog God later produced in modern day format, I guess, that he had, uh, he'd written. And oddly enough, I was the editor of the newspaper. And I had access to the, the local newspaper, let our high school go there and use all their stuff, the typesetting equipment and all that other stuff. And I knew how to do it. So he and I uh, typeset uh, the Black Monastery in its original form um, using wax paper and razor blades to do the layout. This is back where like if you had to change a letter, you had to cut the letter out and put mm -hmm. another letter in there with wax paper. And we made about a dozen of these things, right? And we sold six of them to the local hobby store. And then we gave, you know, four of them to our friends. We each kept one. I still have it, by the way. Um, the reason we republished that module was he gave all his D&D stuff years later to his brother-in-law. Uh, it was a guy named Mark um, Shipley. He's the guy who led the effort on this. Uh, we were talking on the ASEAM forums because someone had bought the stuff at a garage sale, not Black Monastery, but something else. And they wanted, they asked me the question, hey, can we publish this? I bought this old manuscript in a three-ring binder. And I was like, no, nah, man, you can't. You don't own the, you know, you own the manuscript, but you don't own the intellectual property rights to it. So you cannot do that. Mm -hmm. And and Mark said, hey, I've got one like that that my brother-in-law wrote back in the 70s called the Black Monastery. And I was like, <laughs> no way, right? Because Scott's another one who disappeared um, after high school because he went to the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, was off in, on an aircraft carrier somewhere in the Middle East or something. And I hadn't seen him for years. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it turned it was a small world, you know. The, the, dude, the dude married one of my best friends who I hadn't seen for 30 years. And he, and the punchline is this, he lived 15 miles from me. <laughs> so, you know, freaky small world stuff. But, um, but uh, anyway, so we got, we got in touch with Scott and blah, blah, blah. Can we publish it as a course? And he, you know, and, and we published the Black Monastery. So that was actually my first publishing effort. But then I went on hiatus for a long time. Um, so 1999, um, Clark Peterson and I had gone to college together and we graduated um, back from a college of Virginia, uh, you know, 11 or 12 years earlier. And uh, I got back, I'd, I had been down in Los Angeles on business um, and tried to find him because I knew he lived in Fountain Valley 
And by the way, there was, there was something like 62 C. Petersons or Clark Petersons in Fountain Valley, California. LA's got a lot of people, right? Yeah. I called all of them. <laughs> Not it. I, I got so I got hung up on. I got told to screw off prank caller. I got told all kinds of, you know, some people were real nice. No one had ever heard of him. You know, it was not Clark Peterson who'd gone to college at Washington Lee in Virginia. Anyway, um, I got off the airplane, went to the Irish bar, went to my house, which is right next to the Irish bar, and I uh, came home and popped my voicemail. And on my, back when they used to have the boxes with the button you had to push, you know, the tape mm-hmm. recorder. And Clark Peterson had called me. He called every person with the last name of Webb in Seattle looking for me. Now, this was complete bizarre coincidence. I didn't know anything about I was just, I just, I was, I was in Fountain Valley, so I thought I'd try and look the guy up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he, 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 had a, he had an ulterior motive. He had, uh, uh, he, you know, obviously graduated from law school, had become a lawyer, very successful. And in some of his case reading, had figured out that. TSR, I guess it was Wizards of the Coast at the time, but TSR, ergo Wizards of the Coast, ergo Hasbro by then, mm-hmm. um, can't copyright rules. Yep. Okay. And so um, uh, so he calls me up and he goes, hey, man, he goes, let's publish Dungeons and Dragons books. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> dude, we're going to get sued, right? Are you nuts? He goes, no, we won't. He goes, I dare him to, man. He's like, I dare him. Come get me. And I was, he was like, how much money can you throw at this? And I was like, well, you know, I'll put 10 grand in if you do. And he goes, okay, I'm in. Mm-hmm. And so um, he sent him a letter that said, we're going to publish. And they sent us a letter that said, if you do, we'll put you, we'll steal everything you own. And he sent him a letter that said, you know, uh, uh, you know, no, you won't. And they sent us a letter that said, if you don't tell anybody about this for five years, um, we'll give you an exclusive license. And um, we said, sure, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And then about two days later, White Wolf called because we had a D&D license. Uh, this is before anybody knew. There was no SRD. There was no open source anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we um, we got in kind of early and we got lucky, really, is all it boils down to. And, and uh, you know, thank God for Stuart Wick and Steve Wick. Uh, uh, Stuart, rest in peace, Stuart. Um, because they were willing to give, you know, fledgling little me and Clark a, a, a shot um, to, you know, we went from, you know, two dudes in basements to, uh, to suddenly we're the second biggest company in the industry. And, um, and they really helped us out. White Wolf was awesome to us. And, and uh, that's a that I can never repay. I mean, it, it's, you know, Steve obviously has gone on to be extremely successful with drive through and stuff like that. Because mm-hmm. um, he owns drive through RPG. Yep. Um, and just totally nice guys. They were really, it was great advice. They helped us out a lot. Um, uh, you know, we, we, we opened Sword and Sorcery Studio with them. Um, mm-hmm. And then we had a bunch of manuscripts sort of half done that Clark and I had sat down and he, I, I, I dictated and he typed when we were in college. Mm-hmm. And of course, then we had to convert them to, you know, 3.0 and all that other stuff when that came out, and, mm-hmm. you know, from OD&D. Yep. Um, which he did most of the converting because I'm not a rules guy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, then we put, you know, we had Wizards Amulet ready to go, man. We released it one minute after midnight on the day that uh, uh, Hasbro said we could uh, as, a, as a PDF online. And then um, Gen Con that year, was it Gen Con? Might have been earlier. Might have been Origins. Um, we released Crucible of Freya, which is, I have a copy of it here someplace. This. That right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe this was the third module published. Namoran's Vault was first. 
uh, and then uh, TSR released something. So Fiery Dragon had the first thing out. TSR had, I don't remember what it was called, and then we were, I believe we were the third release um, for 3.0 with Crucible Freya. And then, you know, I had 2,000 pages of handwritten manuscripts that we started, well, or, or you know, are typed. By the way, by typed, I don't mean on a computer, I mean typed, mm-hmm. on a typewriter. Yep. Um, that we started retyping and reworking and, and pushing together, and then we came out with, next I think was, I think Rapid Ethic 1 was next, and then uh, Demons and Devils, um, I got home from a business trip, started working on it about five o'clock on Friday night and had the thing done by Sunday and then I collapsed. Um, sent them, I emailed it off to Clark and said, okay, I wrote the whole thing, man. And he's like, what? And I was like, yeah, really? Um, and then, you know, from then we were sort of off the races with Necromancer. Um, and then, uh, we both got married and we both had kids and, um, uh, he, uh, he got elected to a, a judgeship and his workload changed quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, we were, we were, and then, and then, you know, 4.0 happened. Um, and I didn't want to publish for fourth at all. And mm-hmm. he initially did, and we got a license and all that other stuff, but they had that poison pill where you couldn't publish prior editions. So we decided not to do that. Uh, and, uh, you know, the money tapered off and we never, you'll never, like I would tell anybody who wants to get in this business, if you want to make a million bucks, start with two mm-hmm. million. Um, Cause there's not a lot of money in it, but it's, uh, um, but anyway, so that was, so that was, so that was Necromancer. And, mm-hmm. and we, um, our, our, uh, our focus there was really on monsters. Obviously that was the thing we probably were most famous for. Um, and then uh, mini campaigns. Right. And so mm-hmm. we did, we did probably 40, about 40 books that were what I call uh, the sort of a, not really a hex crawl, right? But it's like a, a mini campaign where you have, you know, uh, it was like Lost City Baracus, right? You got a, you got a village and you got a, another village and you got a small geographic area and you have a couple of little mini dungeons and then you got a big dungeon. Mm-hmm. And Rapid Athens was the same way. It was like you got, you know, you got Zelkor's Ferry and you got, uh, you know, two or three other small areas, wilderness areas that are interesting and can lead to something else. They all provide clues and stuff like that, but they're really almost a contained plug and play. So mm-hmm. you can take this, you can take this book and stick it in Greyhawk or Forgotten Realms or Dragonlance or wherever you want to with a small modification and it would fit right in. And that was sort of Necromancer's MO. Um, gotcha. We had almost every product we put out um, was, was, was like that. <laughs> Um, we got some cool licensing deals. We did Grimtooth's Traps. Um, we had the deal with Judges Guild. That was uh, the thing that I think still probably killed the company was doing Wilderlands because it sucked up so much resources for a year. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the hardest project I've ever done. Um, and we just didn't, it was, keep in mind, it was just him and me and a couple yep. other freelancers like Casey Christofferson, you know, mm-hmm. Casey and, Ken, and Scott Green. The three of us would be on, Casey and Scott and I would be on the, uh, you know, on the computer back then when they used to have Microsoft Messenger where you could send stuff back and forth and stuff, you know, and talk. Uh, they didn't have stuff like this. And, um, you know, and we'd be on there for eight or 10 hours a night, you know, Scott typing up stat blocks and sending them and, you know, Casey writing the monster lair and me writing the city thing and, you know, just like whatever it was um, and pulling together those manuscripts. But that, that wilderness box set was brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lovely piece of work, but just brutal. 
And then, so anyway, so by about, by the time fourth edition hit, um, White Wolf got sold. Uh, we weren't really willing or able with, I mean, at the time I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Um, and, uh, and Clark had a four or three and a three-year-old because Emily's a year younger than Jillian. Um, and uh, it just, it, it, there was no time, you know. And so I was still sort of involved trying to pull together a lot of freelance stuff, everything else. He had no time at all. Hmm. And we sort of went on hiatus. Um, when the, when the fourth edition thing wasn't going to look like it was going to work for us, he just didn't want to do it anymore. I I didn't want to do fourth edition and we didn't really have a venue. Mm -hmm. Um, and so from about 08 to two that to April of 10, actually, um, we went on total hiatus. Now, the interesting thing about that was I had about a dozen manuscripts that I'd gotten from people. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, so, you know, I told people I'd pay them which I did on a number of them or, um, or, uh, I said they could have the rights back and they could do whatever they wanted with it. Well, one of those manuscripts was slumbering czar and, uh, Greg Vaughn, uh, wanted his rights back. And so I gave him his rights back at the time and, and I released him from his contract. And then, uh, he, uh, he called me and nobody would touch the thing with a 10 foot pole, man. Cause it was like, a, it was like, you know, 700,000 words. Right. And so, so nobody was interested and he, he knew, uh, Lisa Stevens. I knew Lisa Stevens fairly well as well from the earlier days, but he knew her pretty well. He was one of like the VIP, you know, authors and stuff with Paizo and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But they were, they were not interested in publishing that book. It was just too big. And, uh, so he's like, yeah, I just can't find anybody to do it. And I'm like, you know what? Let's do it. You know, I go, you know, same kind of thing Clark said to me, you know, I, I'll put 10 grand in if you will. And of course he, I didn't ask him to put 10 grand. I said, I'll put, I'll, let's do it. And, um, and, uh, I had to separate the intellectual property from Necromancer because it was a completely new venture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was always Sathaga on the, on, I've been, I was, I've been froggy on video games and war games. Anybody who plays Lord of the Rings online out there, if they're on Arkenstone, will know me as Froggy. But, uh, back to the days we used to run what were called MUDs, multi-user dungeons, which were yep. basically chat room dungeons. I was always Froggy. And it's because I'm a big Clark Ashton Smith fan and, and Sathaga was sort of like my thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, uh, it's out of Hyperborea. Everybody should read that anyway. So, uh, uh, so I started frog God games just as a separation of intellectual property. I called Clark and said, do you want to do this? He said, no, I'm out. I got no time. It's like, I thought so. So I think I'm going to start a separate company. You'll still be involved if we do anything necromancer financially and otherwise, if you want, and Frog God's going to be a completely separate entity. And he, he, and I agreed and it was all cool. And we're, you know, he's still the godfather of my daughter. We're still good friends. Mm-hmm. And, um, anyway, so, uh, Chris and I filled out the LLC paperwork and submitted everything on April 1st. I'm not kidding. <laughs> April 1st, 2010. And, uh, a lot of people thought I was, and I sent an email out to my customer list, which at the time was about seven or 800 people that were on the Necromancer forums and that kind of thing. And really fanatically loyal guys. Most of them, again, gals, most of them were still around. Actually, our first three customers were all women, interestingly. Um, and uh, Greg was big in Pathfinder, so we decided to publish in Pathfinder, right? Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I don't know rules. And I figured no one was going to buy OD&D, so... Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I said, okay, we need to make like 6,000 bucks and that'll pay for, you know, you know, the layout and, 
you know, that kind of thing. And I called Chuck right up and I said, Hey man, I go, uh, I'm, uh, how would you like to lay out a, you know, a 900 page book? I'll pay you something between zero and whatever we make. And he said, yeah, okay. I mean, sure. Let's do it. And uh, cause he was out of the industry. He wasn't doing anything. And I called Rick Sardena up who was our, who'd been my cover artist for probably 15 or 20 books. I wish I could flip my camera to show you the Mesopotamia drawing up on the wall. I bought the oil painting from him. Um, but, um, uh, and I said, I'll pay you something from zero to whatever. And uh, hanged Robert Altbauer over in Austria, who's a cartographer that had done a lot of work for us. And I said, I'll pay you zero to whatever. And he said, sure, I'm in. So basically, all of us went to work for zero. Um, we put the book up for sale on my mailing list, and we did $145,000 the first weekend. So, <laughs> and, and thus Frog God was born. Um, yep. uh, my wife and I were not, my wife and I were not planning on starting a new company. Um, I wasn't, certainly had no intention. I was going to publish Greg's book and that was it. Uh, and suddenly we had, we were capitalized. Um, and, uh, then we had to figure out a way to do it. Right. Cause you know, it's like, holy shit. Now I need like 200 pieces of art, 200 pages of maps. And, oh my God. You know, um, I think the cover artist, uh, made about 30 grand on that book, um, which is, is the most, you know, certainly, certainly far more than our usual race. Uh, I have no idea how much Robert made on the cartography, but he did okay too. Um, we, the book still sells. I mean, it's, it's still selling here. We are 11 years later and, uh, mm -hmm. we're, we don't have any of the hard copies left, but, but, uh, the PDF still sells a few, you know, probably 20 copies a quarter or something for 40 bucks. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, so that's, 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 that was the, the origins of Frog God. And then the bottom, and then I went to PaizoCon that year and um, everyone was saying, you got to do Toma Horrors, man. You got to make monster books. That's what you're famous for, you know? And, and uh, same kind of thing. We, Greg and I, and a couple other people put this book together and, uh, uh, and I, I was, I had, I had 1500 copies of a print, right? Cause it was, you know, it's, it's huge, right? It's like nine, I don't know if there's one here. I think there is. It's about that thick. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like 810 pages or something. Right. Yep. Um, and, um, and I, I had to write the check to the printer and, um, that was in a, that was in about, I don't know, June or something. And, um, uh, my wife said, she's how, how big is that? How much is that printer going? I said, it's about 45,000 bucks. And she's like, this better work. <laughs> and cause, cause the thing is we didn't have, you know, we didn't really have the money, right? We'd spend yep. all the money on yeah. getting Spring Czar pulled together and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, print companies didn't know who the hell I was at the time because I never dealt with that with White Wolf or with Troll Lords or with Kenzer. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so they, they, they had to pay them up front. Mm -hmm. You know, like, they're like, oh, you want to you you print a $40,000 book? Show me the money, kid. You know, that was basically <laughs> what they said. And uh, then we put it up for sale um, in... I think it went on sale like September 15th or something like that. And it sold out in an hour and a half. And then, um, you know, I'm getting phone calls from Paizo saying, Hey man, you, you got to reprint this. We need more copies. We sold all of them. Right. I'm like, uh, I got no money. You know, I, uh, I will when you, you know, when I get my royalty checks and stuff, I'll have money again, but I, I don't have, I don't have a penny. I mean, I wrote a personal check out of my, out of my own money to print the thing. And, um, so they, uh, they actually lent me money. Um, to reprint the book, and that's how the second printing came to came to be. I mean, it was pretty safe money to lend me. They owed me like you know, a hundred thousand bucks, you know, and uh, you know, so lending me twenty or whatever wasn't a big deal. But because mm -hmm. they just took it out of my royalties, but it was um, 
it was interesting. Uh, and so, and I, honestly, once that happened, um, we had enough money to start doing other stuff. And so we started making little modules and then, um, and then, um, you know, from there, I mean, there's, there's been a number of fairly major interim steps in there. Um, the, the, what, what do you want, where do you want me to go next? Matt or what? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard so, kind of how Matt enters the story, right. but from your perspective, it'd be, it'd be yeah. So I, I think we probably, we're probably pretty, uh, Matt Finch and I are, are for better or for worse, uh, really similar. And so, um, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, you know, history will tell, but, um, so, uh, I, uh, I, 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 uh, I ordered, I wanted to produce stuff that I, I could actually use. Right. And, and I don't know, I, I Pathfinder just, it's just, it's just like a wall of stats to me. Yeah. I, I'm not beaten on the game. It's been a, it's been a great seller for us and a lot of people love it and, and everything else. It's just not my style of play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, anyway, um, so I was looking for a, uh, an AD and D or OD and D variant, something that was legal because a lot of them aren't. And, mm-hmm. You know, a lot of them violate, you know, uh, either trade dress or whatever else. And I don't think this is so much the truth anymore, but it was back in 2010, 2011. And, um, but Wizard of the didn't care, mm-hmm. right? Some guy's going to sell 30 copies of a book on Lulu and they, they really are not going to screw with him. Anyway, um, so uh, I, I got all the different rule sets that were available at the time. And there were oh, six or seven of them, I think. Mm-hmm. That I that I looked at and bought, and I handed them all to my lawyer and said, "Are do any of are any of these uh, careful enough that they're not going to run into intellectual property issues?" And um, and the, the thing is, because we actually had something to protect at that point, you know, we yep. had a big enough company, we had something to protect. We were doing four or five hundred thousand dollars a year in, in revenue. And um, he pulls this one out and he goes, "Man, he goes, this guy really knows what he's doing." He goes, "It's it's like it's it's." It's flawless. He goes, there's not one thing in here that you could sue anybody over. And that was Swords of Wizardry uh, complete, actually. Not complete. Swords of Wizardry uh, core rules. Mm-hmm. And so I went on a find Matt Finch quest. <laughs> and um, and uh, Matt Finch is not that easy to find. He doesn't have a cell phone. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his email is not his name. Um, I finally found him uh, through, uh, uh, I remember it was Dragon's Foot or... One of the one of the kind of like groggy groggy uh, places I found him, or he I found a, I posted up, hey, I'm looking for this guy. If anybody knows how to find him, here's my contact information. And he called me, and uh, he's like, hey, what can I do for you? And I said, well, you know, I, I want to publish OD and D stuff uh, using our Pathfinder material, but you know, it's your game system, and I know I can, right? But I don't want to be a jerk, and I want to I want to talk to you about it and find out if there's a way that you can. You know, if, if it's okay with you and, you know, basically I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to just like rip somebody off, even though it technically might be legal to use his rules. I wanted to let him know I was doing it and get his blessing. Right. And he goes, well, actually, he goes, I sort of hate running game companies. How about you just buy my company? How about you just buy my company and, and I'll write and, and do some other stuff and you can, you can deal with all the publishing angle of things. And, um, and uh, within about three or four months, my wife was calling him my internet wife because we talk on the phone every yep. day. Um, our uh, our life stories are fairly similar. Uh, our uh, our uh, our philosophies and, and 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 personalities are very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and at least we had, we had a lot in common. And, and the guys the guys he's absolutely one of my best friends. I mean, I, I love that guy. And. Um, Anyway, so that's how that's how Sword and Wizardry came into being with that, and then we 
we uh, we started uh, loss leadering those books, and it kind of took off. And shockingly enough, um, we sell a lot of sword and wizardry books. I mean, it's it's uh, uh, it's it's kind of neat. I think a lot of people have looked at the simplicity of it, and uh, and then you know Eric, they work Eric Tankard did to do sword and wizardry light. You know, it's it's a brilliant teaching tool for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we've got another gal, um, Steve Marsh's daughter Rachel who uses it as a teaching tool. I think she's running 5e now. She used to use Sword Wizardry uh, for autistic kids. And that was, that's been, that's been really successful uh, in, in, in what she's been, the work she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, that's how Sword Wizardry came into being. And then gotcha. the sort of the next thing that happened after that was, I think it's four years ago, we were at uh, Game Hole Con. Mm-hmm. And Matt and I had been talking and decided that, um, we were not the droids we were looking for as a administrator. So both of us are 30,000 foot guys. We're both creatives. Um, I'm really good with money and numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sort of like strangely good. Actually, I can usually tell you how many books you're going to sell and how much your costs are going to be just by looking at a project. And, um, but we needed, we needed an organizer money. And um, neither of us are, are that guy. And we did some talking. There were a few names that came up with people we knew that were small players in the industry that had done uh, some relatively cool things. Um, there, were, there, there were three people. Uh, well, there were four, but Steve Chenault wasn't for sale, so there's that. <laughs> there, were, there, were three other, there were three individuals, and we, we, we sort of wanted it down to, you know, we, we spent a little bit of time kind of getting to know these, these folks and seeing if they were somebody we really wanted to work with a lot. And uh, the, the top of the list was Zach Glazer when he had Lesser Gnome. And Zach had, um, uh, Zach was both of our first choices to approach on this. Um, Zach had recently produced a box set that is, to, to, to this day, one of the nicest pieces of work I've ever seen in the, in the RPG industry. I mean, it had, it had, you know, in the immortal words of Stefan and Saturday Night Live, it had everything. I mean, it was like, this, it was a great adventure. It had props, it had miniatures, it had dice, it had like a little tray thing that they all fit in, it had cards. It was beautiful. He spent way too much money doing it and will probably never make a project like this again because, you know, I, I'm, not sure, I'm not even sure he made money if he sold it retail, right? Because it was too nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but he did it all, all, all in his, he did the whole thing himself. And he, he, he step by step put the whole thing together and, you know, made his 50 cents an hour doing it. Uh, and it was a brilliant, brilliant piece of work. And um, I mean, he coordinated the sculptors, the artists, everything. And that's the kind of guy we were looking for. And so about 10 o'clock at night, when I, he, and, he and Mike Battelotto from, uh, uh, from uh, who ran at the time, ran, he's not one of the partners, but he at the time he was just running the North Texas RPG Con. We're real good friends. And they were hanging out and Matt and I were hanging out. And about 10 o'clock at night, when I looked at Zach, I said, so uh, what would it take to buy you out? And he's like, what? I go, thinking about bringing you in as a partner. And he was like, oh, you know, sure, sure, sure. You know, I've produced two books or three books at the time, you know, and here, here you have, you know, these guys who've been around, you know, for 15 years, you know, and have, have made all this stuff. And they're like the main sponsor for the con. And they want to buy me. Ha oh, he thought it was a joke. Mm-hmm. And he got back, he and Mike left and, and uh, they got back to their room and he was, he was talking to Mike and he's Mike. He goes, oh my God. He goes, yeah, I wish Bill would screw with me like that. And he goes, Zach, Bill doesn't make shit like that up. If he said it, he meant it. So the next morning, uh, he comes by the booth and he's kind of looking at me sheepishly. And I don't know if you've met Zach, but he's a big dude, right? Yep. So he's about 
he's about he's about that big and he's like well you know you mentioned last night you know and was that just bar talking I said no 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 absolutely not i go um i go let, i think let's go have lunch and sit down and talk about terms well what is it you'd like are you is this something you're interested in and he he was cagey about it because he's like well, what does it mean you know and then we, but we he was thoughtful um and i spent the bulk of that day with him sort of talking through roles responsibilities um in an equity partnership position um and uh uh I can tell you since Zach got here, we're twice as big and it's uh it's Matt and I's crazy ideas, but Zach's execution that really makes it happen. And, and it was the best move we made since the inception of the company was, was bringing Zach up board. Absolutely. Well, God damn it, Zach. Yeah. God damn it, Zach. Yeah. How Skeeter came up with that. But yep. yeah, he's uh, a, Zach is the organizer bunny. And I mean, um, he, he, I have a lot of relationships in the industry that are strong and have been really successful. Um, mm -hmm. Zach takes my nutty ideas and actually makes us get them done. And that's the, that's the big thing because 90% gotcha. of the failure in the game industry is, is failure to execute. Everybody's got great ideas. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually pulling it off and, and finishing. That is really impressive. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, uh, so, Bill, we are kind of running out of time here. So, uh, two last things. Firstly, uh, just one more question for you. Uh, this is kind of around just the, the breadth of the catalog that you guys offer. If there was one product uh, from Frog God that you would recommend people who haven't picked up anything from Frog God yet pick up, what would it be? Well, my favorite, my favorite, I have two. Uh, my favorite, my two favorite books we've ever produced. This is the this is Lost Sons World setting. Gotcha. Um, it arrives. It's in the U.S. now. It has arrived. I got the customs paperwork a couple days ago. <laughs> um, uh, Mark Greenberg, who is a uh, longtime friend of mine from the collector collector set and everything else, retired from his legal job about two and a half years ago, <laughs> and he helped he helped myself and a team of about a dozen other writers pull together my game world and. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how big is it? It's like 600 pages or something. It's just gorgeous. This thing is just like, it's, 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 it's a, it's, it's a unit system. So it's not, um, it's not, uh, uh, it's not, uh, you know, necessarily tied to Swords and Wizardry or tied to Pathfinder or tied to 5e. But the, the beauty of it is it is tied to all of our other products. So, you know, 200 and some odd, um, additional books are cross-referenced and cross-indexed in here the point that you know if you're if you're uh you know traveling around the gulf of limbos you can find you know the splinters of faith introduction the other thing, cool thing about this product is that john barnhouse and his team have digitized it all and it's on world anvil now which cool. is pretty skookum yeah uh and then they talked me into making a map pack and we made there's there's like 15 or whatever it is giant poster maps uh blown up of the world so you can actually read everything on it because it's awful big Mm -hmm. uh, so that, that's probably uh, the newer stuff. That's probably my favorite. I mean, sort of air. Um, that's always been my baby. Mm -hmm. And uh, the problem is, I think we're down to about 40 units of it in the warehouse. Uh, just in swords and wizardry, all the, all the pathfinder ones are gone. That was never done for five. E. It, it's too big and too expensive to make a new one anytime in the next five years or six years, because too mm -hmm. many people already own it in one of the other formats. But, but uh, it's uh I have one here. I think that's one. It's uh, yeah. Here it is. It looks like this. It's still. This is the sort of the basis of my campaign uh, for about eight years in a row. 
Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the entirety of the adventure is three pages long and all the rest of it is setting and areas and dungeons and stuff. And uh, that's the one where I mentioned earlier with the NPCs, Caden and Duncan. They, they, they both mm-hmm. appear in that book. Um, that thing really goes back to the, the, the root core of my D&D. Um, uh, it's not for the faint of heart, it's tough. <laughs> and then, of course, everybody everybody loves rap and ethic. Um, uh, I, you know, it's the big, the big mega dungeon thing. But uh, and, and then probably the uh, the other book that is a uh, is that I had nothing to do with, um, other than I published it. That is, I've reprinted it four times now. I, I can't believe it just keeps selling and selling and selling after ten years. But uh, Matt Finch's uh, Tome of Adventure design. Mm-hmm. I've actually got and, that on my uh, shelf over here. Yeah, it's that that book is just it's just it's just really bloody useful. It's one of the few things I travel with is a copy of that. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, uh, to to close things out here, uh, basically, if you have anything coming up, I know you know. Uh, assuming that things are still going to happen as they're planned to right now, uh, you guys are going to have a, a big presence as always at North Texas RPG Con. Uh, so anything else that's coming up. Uh, just the, the microphone is yours. Anything you want sure. to promote, go for it. Well, the, the, the several things, um, one is we do a lot of charity work. Um, and the next thing we're going to be doing is in early June, we're going to be doing a humble bundle, uh, that's going to be supporting, um, uh, there's, there's two charities I'm looking at right now. So I'm not gonna tell you which one it is yet, but it'll be one of the charities. The, uh, the idea being there are folks who, uh, make and distribute, uh, disease prevention equipment, uh, mm-hmm. places that can't afford it. Um, we did one recently um, with uh, where we worked with Tom Tullis and, and the, uh, a number of other folks um, where we, we, we had a charity. We, we like them. There's one other one we're looking at right now. Mm-hmm. But obviously the time is nigh for, uh, for uh, supporting our hospitals and our first responders with, with gear. And so, you know, it's 15 bucks, right? You go and spend mm-hmm. 15 bucks and, and a big hunk of that goes to charity. Some of it does go to the writers and artists and things like that. Cool. Um, then the second thing is... Um, we're going to have a book of magic items and magic item creation. Uh, title is still TBD, uh, but there'll be a Kickstarter next month for that. On, on, so look for that. I believe it's going to be run under the Necromancer brand. Because, you know, we own Necromancer and Frog God. We yep. publish under both. Um, and it's uh, by a guy named Courtney Campbell. He did a phenomenal job on this thing. Uh, and uh, Ken Spencer's been working on it as well. It's really a solid book. Um, uh, there hadn't been a whole lot like that in in 5e and so i think it's something that there's been a little bit of stuff out and the things the things completely written um we're buying art like gangbusters right now um as you can imagine we have slowed down a little bit i canceled three kickstarters that we were planning on running uh since february mm-hmm. one actually canceled the other two we just didn't run because i know people are really struggling right now and i didn't want to have you know well we love to have you guys buy our 15 dollars books we run those every couple weeks you know the hundred dollar book or the hundred dollar buy-in we wanted to give folks a little time to recover before we start putting those out again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the really one I'm most excited about though, there is this one I'm really, really excited about just because it's the, maybe the best pun I've heard in years is we have our Mesoamerican setting um, from the lost lands. It goes, it goes, that's my books fall over the ground. It goes hand in hand with the, the lost lands world setting. Um, and uh, it's by a guy named Tom Knaus. If you guys have seen our work, you probably know who Tom is. Um, he's uh, he's done maybe eight or ten books for us over the last decade. 
Um, but the best part about that with him writing a Mesoamerican book, uh, it's, it's part of the Lost Land setting, of course. He worked on that as well. Is we're able to put out an adventure that goes with it called The Hidden Shrine of Tom Knaus. <laughs> and so it's spelled slightly differently with like, you know, Aztec language and stuff. Yeah. But he, he, he brought that up, but I just, I just about, I just about fell out of my chair. I was laughing so hard. And, um, That's pretty great. So one of the adventures is actually called The Hidden Shrine of Tom Knoss. Uh And uh, um, and I think it has a bat guide in it someplace. But anyway, uh, that'll be out. I think we're going to kickstart that. It's probably going to be July or could be August. Gotcha. Um, that'll be a, that'll be a, a big uh, Unisystem source book that goes with the Lost Lens world setting. And then two um, pretty good size, like 60 to 80 page uh, adventures that are, that, are, that are paired with it. Um, and it, again, it's Tom, man. So it's really well written. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll be, it'll be, uh, it'll be tough because adventures are hard. They're really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, we've got, you know, the, the plan honestly this year was 10 Kickstarters and, and, and 24 Indiegogos. So, uh, if you follow our, follow our Facebook page, uh, for Frog God Games, uh, you'll notice we are, there's, it's impossible to put out small modules because distribution doesn't carry and stuff like that. Right. So, um, we like doing them and our customers, you know, several hundred of them like buying them. So every two to three weeks, I think we're doing two a month or something, one, one of each brand. Um, and you can find them on our Facebook page. We're, we're doing, uh, you know, little short modules that are somewhere between like, you know, 13 and 22 bucks type thing. I think all the PDFs are either six or eight bucks. Uh, right now, uh, Grimsgate's on sale. We just finished up a lost manuscript from Mike Merle's that I bought back in 2002 that never got published. Um, that one came out. The neat thing about these is um, we print them on a hundred pound high gloss paper. So they're a, little, they're, they're a little more expensive maybe than, you know, they're not going to be 11 buck modules, right? But they cost us, mm-hmm. the printing cost alone is like four bucks, but they're really nice, man. They're like, they're almost like, you know, they're solid. They're you could, it'd be really hard to tear them. Uh, it's not like crappy, crappy quality paper at all. They're custom printed by a little small mom and pop and shop in Arizona. Uh, and they do a nice job. And the best thing about it is it lets me get new writers involved that might not otherwise get a chance. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to hire Tom Canals to write a 200,000 word manuscript or Anthony Pryor. I'm not going to hire folks that aren't well known to do that. And so it's nice because it gets folks sort of audition, uh, vetted mind you, because if it's not any good, we don't make it right. We turn it down, but but the uh, but it's it's get it's got to get some new writers out there and there's some pretty it's pretty good stuff. Uh, the last bit on those Indiegogos is keep your eye out for holiday editions because we're uh, we're uh, in the holidays. We we did, we've already done Christmas, Valentine's Day. We just did Arbor Day a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm trying to think. We've done, we did Thanksgiving last year with Feast of the Gobbler. Yeah. Um, and uh, they're those modules are a little tongue in cheek. The the holiday ones, but they're they're pretty good. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, Bill, thank you for, uh, for coming on the show. Uh, this has been a great interview. Uh, it, it's cool to, to hear all this and to, you know, again, talk with you guys, every, every person I've talked to who's been kind of from the, the frog God ecosystem has been fantastic. So, you know, I, I love what you guys do and, uh, thanks for coming on the show. You bet, man. We're, we're all gamers first. That's the key thing with our company is we're all gamers. And then we're, we're, we're sometimes poor businessmen because of it, but we're all gamers. <laughs> Gotcha. But one last thing I'll mention. We, uh, I got mad at Amazon about nine years ago and built my own warehouse. So we are 
alive and open and shipping books. And I'm not sure if a whole lot of companies can say that right now, but we also did a big, we've done some big sales because we know people are hurting, but uh, we do, we are doing art. We have all of our own fulfillment and whether or not I like having seven teenagers here full time, uh, uh, most of them work for me. <laughs> and so we've been packing books three, four days a week. So uh, you can get our books uh, direct from us and they will, they will get there. They, uh, uh, they don't, you don't have to, if you can't get to a local game store that carries our stuff because they're shut down or whatever, you know, feel free there or, or easy to find. All right. Well, guys, next week, uh, if you remember the uh, episode that I did a while back with Tim Mathias of Knights and Nerds, where we talked about how to start DMing, uh, I am doing a follow-up to that episode next week uh, where... I will be talking about kind of upping your game as a DM and taking it to the next level. I will not be flying solo though, because we will be joined by the returning Luke Hart of the DM layer. I'm excited to bring him on again. He's got some fantastic insights uh, that you can see in a lot of his videos. And so it'll be cool to bring him in on that conversation. Uh, so until then, whether you rolled a one or a 20, I am so glad that you rolled your bones with me. Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.